Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I am happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, I am really excited to have Miss Terry Hines, and Terry will be my first podcast person that actually works for the NASPA organization. She is our Director of Policy Research and Advocacy. Good, good day, Terry. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yes, this is exciting. I'm, I, I work a lot with the different folks at NASPA, but I've never actually had in this podcast situation have someone that actually works for NASPA. So this um, ought to be interesting. Before we jump into your policy and research and advocacy job, let's talk a little bit about how you got to this point. Sure. Even though I work for NASA, I am not by training or by profession a student affairs professional. So that's something I usually like to try to get out right away because it does mean that I have a little bit of a different lens on some of the conversations than our members. So I try to be very conscious of that in the work that I do so that I'm I'm staying true to representing what our members um, uh, do uh, for their professions. But I did work on a college campus. I worked on a couple of college campuses. Before coming into DC, I worked for two regional comprehensive institutions in the Midwest. I worked for the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and Winona State University. While I was there, Director of Institutional Research and Assessment. So I worked in a lot of uh, the data conversations. I was the person who could tell you how many students you had and what kind of students they were and which classes were full and which ones, you know, maybe needed a little bit more enrollment. And all of those kinds of questions were things that I worked with in my institutional research role. But in my assessment role, I was able to work across the campus much more broadly and help both student affairs and academic units um, evaluate whether what they were doing was accomplishing the goals that they had set out. So that's where I really came into some of which I'll talk about uh, hopefully a little as we go along. But the idea of evidence-based storytelling is one of those kind of fundamental skills that transfers across realms. So both within kind of a campus-based you know, telling our story, what are we doing? Is it doing what we want it to do? But then also as you bring that out into more of a policy conversation, it's the same kind of skill. When I left campus, I came into DC. I worked for another association for a couple of years, focusing more on some data policy, again, building on my institutional research background. And then when the position opened up at NASPA two and a half years ago, I was overjoyed to be able to do some more direct work um, representing Many of the issues that NASPA um, includes in their uh, public policy agenda um, are much more aligned with where I want to be putting my attention and my focus personally. So it was just a great fit. And it's been a fantastic couple of years working with the team at NASPA. And I've really been enjoying getting to know our members better as well. So what is your education background as far as your majors from BA and so forth? Yeah, so I have a bachelor's degree in government, which is also known as political science. Um, I graduated from Cornell University and they have a a government program there. It was a great, great program. It was not until I really moved to DC, though, that I was considered a success for that program because I wasn't working in government until I got out here. My master's degree is from the University of Chicago, and I have a master's in social service administration, which at the U of C, that's their social work program. I did focus on public policy administration, really focused there on health administration more than education, but the two fields are actually remarkably similar. 
in terms of how they are managed, sort of the distributed workforce and the independence of the faculty compared to independence of doctors and nurses. So the translation between them was pretty easy to make. So you're right. You had nothing to do with the whole student nope. affairs <laughs> at all. I was trying to see if I could map it together. And I'm like, nope, 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 and nope. Interesting. So like you said, that gives a, a definite different point of view for us as student affairs professionals to look at when it comes to policy and research in your job and advocacy. So did you ever work in the health administration or you just really know a lot about it or? No, I did not. So when I graduated, the healthcare field was pretty challenging. Um, I'd say that's still pretty much the same. There's a lot of challenges in in healthcare, specifically in healthcare and hospital administration, which is where I would have uh, potentially gone. So I made a decision shortly after graduation to really switch into education. I did work for a little while in a K-12 setting, really on a research side of the K-12 setting. So building into the assessment work that I did, evaluating program interventions in K-12 classrooms to make sure that they were actually achieving what they said they were supposed to be achieving. So this was during the era of No Child Left Behind, where that evidence-based intervention was sort of the gold standard. So I did work in that setting for just a a couple of years before I I made my way into institutional research at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. Wow, that's, yeah, we are like the total opposite. (laughs) It's it's so funny. I'm listening to you. I'm like, wow, no, didn't do that, didn't do that. But that's what provides NASPA for for the things that you do as far as, like you said, the policy and, and how, I guess, government, I'm assuming how government things that change for education or in, in higher ed in this case, you're able to then decipher that and kind of make that work for everybody. Yeah. So I would say that I lean most on, and this, this sometimes surprises people, but I lean more on my master's work. So the, the social work training, the the understanding of systems and organizational theory. That So there's a lot of corollaries, I think, between my master's program and, and what um, folks that are in master's in, in student affairs administration would learn as well. So we do focus a lot, or we did focus a lot on the policy side, more on, on bill analysis. So if, you know, if this particular piece of legislation is implemented, what is that gonna mean for sort of your frontline workers in a social service setting? That skill very definitely translates over for higher education. I think that a lot of the conversations that are happening in the public policy world right now for the last several years, but, but even you know, more so in just the last couple of years, the policy conversations are focusing a lot in areas that directly affect student affairs and student affairs professionals. So being able to translate that in both directions, being able to take a piece of legislation or a policy proposal that's coming from a policymaker at, you know, even the local or the federal or the state level and say, okay, if you, you know, actually read through this legislation and and understand what this text is saying, this is what it's going to mean on a day-to-day basis when you bring that into a campus setting or when you try to implement that at an institution. But then also trying to provide that information, that conduit for information back up. So we have, you know, lots and lots of practitioners that work day-to-day in these settings that see firsthand sort of some of the the trade-offs, some of the maybe unintended consequences that might happen from different proposals or pieces of legislation. So I think that one of the roles that we do is try to to give uh, avenues for our members to provide that information back up to policymakers. And I do think that policymakers really want to genuinely make good policy. Now, we may disagree about what they're trying to achieve, but they want to implement, they want to create policy that's going to actually do what they think that it should do. So part of that is they need to rely on the expertise of the people that are going to, in the end, be implementing that 
to help them understand, yes, this is going to work the way you think it is, or, you know, it's close, but maybe if you made these couple of changes, it would really allow us to do much more, or we'd be better able to support students in the way that you think that we um, we should be able to do. So that that's really, I think, a lot of the role that we do, that, that I work with a, an associate director, Diana Ali. So that between the two of us, we really do try to, to provide that conduit in both directions of, of information sharing and, and um, analysis, understanding, you know, what does this really mean? What is it going to look like when it comes down to an institutional setting? Let me just ask this. What is the, the hot button right now as far as policy and, and its effects in higher education? Oh, wow. There's a couple. So the, the really geeky policy wonks right now are all paying attention to the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. So HEA, it is our, our landmark piece of legislation at the federal level that governs all federal activity related to higher education. So all of our financial aid programs, all of our um, like the grant programs that operate through TRIO, funding for our minority serving institutions, our HBCUs, our HSIs, and our tribal colleges, all of that comes through the Higher Education Act. And that's a major, major piece of legislation that is currently up for consideration in Congress. So there's a lot of attention in the DC higher ed policy space on the Higher Education Act reauthorization on what the particular proposals are that are coming from both the House and the Senate. They're not they're not identical. They're, they're different pieces of legislation that are being considered by both chambers. But then there's also different proposals from the, the, the different parties, from Republicans and Democrats. So that's where all of the attention right now in the D.C. space is. But I would say that also across the states. So Diana and I also track education policy, education related policy bills and trends across the states. So we look at state legislature, state legislatures when they're in session to try to get a sense of are there kind of emerging themes around which many states are making policy or, or creating legislation that we can help raised to the level of, of awareness and understanding for our members so that they may be able to sort of have conversations with folks from other states who might be experiencing similar policies. And there, I would say that a lot of the conversation lately has focused on free speech. So this idea that there's a crisis of some sort related to free speech on college campuses and who's getting to speak and whether or not campus administrators are sort of bowing to heckler's vetoes or whether there's this idea of kind of a liberal bias in education. And I think that a lot of the evidence says no, but policymakers get the feeling when they're talking to their constituents that there is some sort of crisis that they need to respond to. So we're seeing uh, more and more legislation designed to sort of protect free speech in the, at the state level, which has been uh, kind of interesting to look at and, and puzzle apart and see what it will actually, what we you know, some of it might actually chill speech as opposed to promote speech. So we're, we definitely want to keep an eye on that. And I think that's a pretty hot topic. So let's go back to the first one, the higher ed um, act. When you say major issues, are you seeing that they're thinking about reducing the funds, taking those programs out? As a first generation college grad and a, an EOP alum, which is part of the TRIO program, you know, without that, I wouldn't be here talking with you today. So yeah. that, that makes that kind of nerves me a little bit, knowing, you know, that they, I mean, what, what are they trying to do? Are they, are they trying to lessen the funds? Are they trying to just eliminate? So it, it depends. Um, I would say that generally speaking, across both parties and both chambers of Congress, the, there's broad bipartisan support for making college affordable for more students. So again, the how you get to that looks very different depending on the proposal that you're looking at and those tend to fall along party lines, but not even entirely there. So generally speaking, there's a lot of interest in supporting 
institutions and supporting students. Where you come down to, as you do in most legislation, is the details. That's where the devil, the devil's in the details, right? So when you start to look at individual programs, one of the tricks, not really a trick, but one of the things that makes making legislation, particularly at the federal level, really difficult is that it does have to balance, right? The budgeting process is set up per year. That's an an We have an annual appropriations process in Congress that happens starts in the spring. It's supposed to wrap up by September 30th. It's usually not. We're in a continuing resolution situation now because we're, we haven't wrapped up the budget process for the, the current year. But that's separate from the sort of idea around what programs should we be allocating funds to. So the HEA bill, Higher Education Act Reauthorization Bill, is really about the what kind of programs should we authorize uh, Congress to allocate funds to. And that does require some trade-offs, right? So you've got some really long-standing programs that have a lot of support, that have done a lot of really good things for our students. But when you come to adapting some of those programs to meeting the needs of today's students, sometimes the Congress has to make really hard decisions about, do we give more money to one program in order to support a larger population of students? And then what does that mean that we might have to take away in another program? Generally speaking, support for TRIO has uh, good, broad, good broad bipartisan support. People generally recognize the, the value of the TRIO programs in supporting access for first-generation and um, minority uh, historically underrepresented students. So those programs tend to at least stay at the same level of funding that they have been. It's, it's pretty rare that we would see cuts to the TRIO programs. Um, I think it's, it's talked about every now and then, but it almost never makes it through to a, a, a real a policy proposal or a piece of legislation that's really got a chance of, of passing through the chambers. The Pell program is a perennial um, conversation. So the Pell program has lost a lot of its purchasing power. The, the dollar amount of a Pell grant, of a maximum Pell grant, doesn't pay for as much of the cost of education now as it did when it was created. So they talk about the purchasing power of the Pell Grant and how that's eroded. And so a lot of the conversation focuses on how can we help bolster that? How can we help provide more money to the students that need it the most? That's expensive. You know, as our student bodies change, as we start to engage and enroll more and more students who are low income or who are from historically underrepresented populations that maybe don't have access to the wealth that other students in the past have had, we do have to start to grapple with how do we support them appropriately. So that Pell program and the purchasing power becomes a really big talking point, and it's a very, very expensive one. So the Pell program is a big one. Um, I would say that this year we're looking at, we've, we've got a proposal from the House, from the, the Democrats in the House, that would uh, create a federalized free college program. So some of the conversations that are happening on the campaign trail are working their way into legislation. So there's a proposal before the House where they would create a federal and state partnership. So this would be a new partnership program for higher education. Traditionally, the federal involvement in higher education funding is to give money to students to spend at the institutions they choose to go to. This program wouldn't give money to states to distribute to institutions in exchange for them for offering tuition and fee-free uh, community college access to, to all residents of the state. So that's a, a new conversation. It's a very also a very expensive program. So there's that idea, if we want to provide this access, where might we have to pull back some funds? Where might we have to pull some money? Generally speaking, Congress would say, well, you know, you would have to take that from another education program, Oliver, that's not a requirement. They could, you know, work at putting some of the, you know, making some revisions to some of the tax code that would allow them to sort of 
bring in new revenue into the federal coffers that would allow them to support those programs. So it's a big complicated mess that requires a lot of patience and a lot of work to get through. But those are some of the bigger conversations is the, 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 the Pell purchasing power, really that, that free college conversation. This is the first time we've seen a, a real serious proposal at the federal level to provide that access and that opportunity. And I'm not one to really watch that because that's not my quote thing as far as the policy piece, but it definitely will affect what's going on on our college campuses when we have at the California State University Humboldt, where we're almost pretty much 50 percent first gen. And so you're going to have a lot of students that are getting receiving Pell and are in, you know, the different trio programs, as well as an increased number of the pre-college trio programs, the gear ups, the upward bounds and things of that talent search and things of that nature. So, again, as an EOP alum, you know, it's something that's necessary now as we look at our world and, and trying to raise up global leaders, as we all would say in our you know strategic plan and our mission statements for most of our institutions. So that that is something to, to, to worry about. So the number two thing that you talked about was state policy. So I have this burning question. Here we go. Ding, ding, ding. Would that have anything to do with the admissions scandal? And tell me your words and thoughts on that and how it relates to your position. So you're in California, so this has probably been dominating your news. Oh, yes. And I used to work for USC, University of Southern Cal, for 20 years in admissions um, for the first three years. Nobody paid me anything, but I'm just saying. But that was the most alarming in the sense that they find somebody finally got caught, but knowing that most likely it has been happening for years. I remember, oh, wow, maybe about 10 years ago, I want to say, the daughter or granddaughter of Walmart or, oh, I can't remember the name now. But anyway, there was a little bit of issues around that, but nothing to the magnitude of five and 10 different campuses all over the United States, especially with a lot of them, well, a couple of them being at USC and our terrible arch rivals, uh, University of California at Los Angeles, also Los Angeles, also known as UCLA. But that has just been a whirlwind, like I said, as an alum of USC, as a, a, a former person that's been, that worked there for 20 years, and as some of the folks are just resigning or being released or however pretty you want to say about being fired, left and right on campus. Yeah, so that's definitely new, right? So that broke pretty late in the year. The thing, most state legislative sessions, so California is different. California does meet year round, but um, many state legislators only meet in the spring. So we have yet to see if there will be a lot more state legislation introduced to address the um, what the varsity blues, I think is what it's been dubbed, the name of the, the tabloid name of the scandal, varsity blues or the admission scandal. I know that there's been a lot of legislation introduced in California to try to address some of the underlying concerns and maybe some of the, to, to maybe address some of the motivations to make it less advantageous for people to engage in that behavior, I would say. We'll see if that starts to go across the country as, as more of the state sessions come back online this spring and they start to, to look at more education-focused policy. There has been also some response to that from Congress. 
So Representative Donna Shalala is um, a former higher education administrator herself. So she understands higher education from the perspective of somebody who's worked in the system. She's a, an amazing advocate for higher education. And she has introduced several pieces of legislation in the last year that have acted not necessarily because they're, you know, really viable and they're definitely going to get passed, but really to start conversations, to look at some of these incentives, to really kind of um, promote some dialogue and discussion around some of the, the issues and some of the scandals that we're seeing. So I think that's been really an interesting development, definitely enjoying her her presence on the Hill and her ability to really speak very intelligently about those conversations and about um, what it really means, what it really looks like when you get to a college campus and you're starting to consider some of these, these conversations. I do think that one unfortunate public policy, so small p, small p, so the, the members of the public and their impression of higher education and how that might trickle back into the more um, you know, large, you know, capital P public policy conversations are that it's kind of the the varsity blue scandal really, I think, delivered a blow to people's confidence in education and higher education institutions. So lots and lots of people. There's lots of surveys out there, uh, lots of polling that's done um, every year about sort of the value of education and whether or not the American public still believes that higher education is worth the investment that um, individuals and that states and the federal government put into it. And largely speaking, there's been a trend, there's been a shift in that conversation for the last several years where more and more people are not quite so sure that it's still worth the cost, right? So that value conversation is, is shifting. Some of that is, you know, because it's gotten very expensive because our aid programs haven't kept up with the cost of, of delivering that education. Some of that is, you know, because of specific you know, the, the athletics conversation, right? So people see the, the amount of money that's spent on athletics and that gives them some concern about whether or not their tuition dollars are actually being used wisely. But it's interesting in all of that research, what generally comes to light is that while this sort of belief in higher education as a field or as an industry might be declining a little bit, the value, the value proposition might be changing, people might not be quite so certain that it's worth their dollars to get a higher education degree, people's confidence in their local institutions stays really high. Like, yeah, generally higher education is probably not doing as well as it used to, but you know, my local community college or my local university, they're great and they do wonderful things and we definitely wanna support them. And we think that that's a good place for our students to go and for our children and our family members to go. So I think what the biggest blow that the, the Varsity Blues scandal kind of delivered to that public conversation is I think it made people really question whether they can actually trust their local institutions, right? Like, are do we really know? Do we do we believe that they're being fair and equitable? I don't know that it's going to have a lasting effect. I hope it doesn't, but I think that it might. I think there's a lot of people that sort of trust in the fairness of a system, and when that fairness is questioned, or when it's even found to be not entirely there, people have reason to sort of look at that and say, okay, maybe we need to reconsider this. And that, I think, is unfortunate. I do think that higher education institutions as a whole are worth that trust and do work with the best interests of their communities in mind. But I, I think that the Varsity Blue scandal is going to shade some people's opinions around that. And we might see a shift in some of the confidence in local institutions in the polling that happens over the next year or two. So with those two things said, how does that all translate to something NASPA members can use in their day-to-day -day work? Yeah, so NASPA members are phenomenally important, both in sort of that, that public outreach perspective, so reaching out to the members of their community, student affairs 
professionals as a as a rule tend to be more engaged on on campus and with local communities in order to deliver the programs that that meet the needs of their students. So if you think about that, you know certainly you've got folks that are doing civic engagement work directly. They're out there. They're doing voter registration. They're working with students to understand the importance of things like civic engagement and voting and participation in the census. But you also have folks that are doing work related to like food and housing insecurity. And so increasingly they're out there working with the community as well. So those advocates in the community working on a day-to-day basis and really demonstrating the the partnership and the value and the contribution of an institution, of of a higher education institution to a broader community, I think that's hugely valuable in terms of addressing and responding to some of these public policy conversations, right? So if you're trying to figure out, you know, is this college not only worth sending my student or my family member to here as a student, but also do I want my state tax dollars to go to support this institution or do I want my federal tax dollars to go to support students at this institution? Demonstrating the the contribution back into a community is something that student affairs professionals do every day that I don't think most people think about. I don't think they think about their role as ambassadors in that way as it relates specifically to policy conversations. And that's okay. That doesn't need to be a direct connection, but it is definitely something that I think Um, student affairs contributes to public policy conversations. Um, I talked a little bit earlier about the role of kind of helping policymakers understand the implication of legislation. So Diana and I don't do a lot of time, we don't spend a lot of time working on Capitol Hill. Like we, we do a lot more to sort of facilitate conversation and education and understanding to policymakers, to our members, to the broader higher education community. But the, when we are up on the Hill, they, the congressmen and women don't want to speak to us. They really don't want NASPA's representative telling them what NASPA thinks. They want to talk to actual practitioners. So they really want to understand that idea of what does this look like? Where are the levers that we can pull to actually make change in a conversation? So one of those, those conversations that's currently, um, wasn't one of the ones that I mentioned in the hot topics, but it's definitely one coming up at both the state and the federal level is hazing, hazing cultures on campus. And hazing is a really, really complex issue. And it's not just limited to higher education, right? So we have to figure out what is the role when you're talking about, you know, coming into a campus-based community, what does it look like to address a hazing culture in that particular community? And that requires a lot of flexibility it requires, you know, a lot of sensitivity to cultural norms. And those are conversations that student affairs professionals are going to be able to express and explain to policymakers directly. They're going to be able to say on our campus, this is what this looks like. And this is why this particular sort of one size fits all model may not work here. But instead, if we were able to sort of get some support or some backing to do this other response, that might work here. So that kind of providing that that nuance and, and really getting into some of the details of what policy looks like when it would be implemented is really, really helpful for, for policymakers. And that's what they're really looking for. They are looking for, you know, how do I make this work the way that I want it to work? I actually, you know, if I really want to address a culture of hazing on college campuses, What's the best tool that I can give to institutions to, to make it possible for them to do that? Interestingly enough, and I, and again, I blame everything on social media because it's real. You know, hazing goes back to the 1800s, you know, when our a lot of our institutions were founded. But what's really interesting is that it's more, again, like everything else, more in our faces. Yeah. You hear every now and then a random this over here in Iowa, a random this over here in Florida, something might happen in California, over here in Missouri. 
But it seems that now we are hearing more and more about hazing. And I'm actually going to be having a podcast about uh, one of the articles on hazing um, in, in one of our publications very soon. But it is definitely something that has been brought to our attention or brought to the light in a, in a, in a, in a, an unfortunate way because of the deaths of our students across the nation. And so, yes, I can, I can totally understand where, like you said, all policies, you know, any policy is not going to be, it's not a cookie cutter thing. It's not going to be something that everybody can follow the exact same way, but we definitely need to have something to follow so that to see how it works and what things that we need to do to stop this increasing number of hazing, which probably has happened all along. It's just that now with social media, with students posting things, families posting after they find out their son or daughter has been killed or murdered by these situations, it's scary. And I'm glad that you're in a position where you have your, you know, your finger on the pulse of these things on on that policy level in order to help us as student affairs practitioners to understand, you know, the needs and what we need to do with our own individual institutions. So I really appreciate, wow, that's a lot and you're on it. Well, unfortunately, we've had so much fun here. We are out of time. Yes, it goes by fast, but you definitely gave us an overview of the types of things that you do for NASPA when it comes to the policy piece, being at the table, like you said, dealing with the Higher Education Act, figuring out what's going on because of different state policies, everybody's you know doing different things. And like you said, with California, you know we have so many issues, we meet year round. <laughs> and so, um, and then of course, with this admission scandal and how that's gonna affect policy on a lot of our, on, uh, it should affect policy on all of our institutions, but um, definitely for the ones that were involved are definitely doing some things. And like I said, heads are rolling left and right, for example, at USC. Now the uh, vice provost for enrollment management is stepping down and she has, you know, admissions, financial aid and all of that. So I just saw that in our Daily Trojan last week. I get the online version and I thought, whoa, this is something. So I thank you for your hard work because I, 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 I need to, now you've opened my eyes and, and now ears to start just kind of listening a little bit and seeing what's going on because again, it is going to affect all of us at some point. So I really, truly appreciate you coming and being a part of the podcast. So let me close by saying thank you so much for joining us today. If you found value in what you heard, because I definitely have opened my eyes, please share the podcast with other student affairs practitioners. I look forward to having you join us next time as we share practical tips to aid you in your own student affairs journey. Until then, have a great day or evening. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time. Thank you.